Let us pray. Father, we know that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask by your Holy Spirit that you would speak that word to us this morning, that you would open our ears to hear you. Ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you are um, reading the bulletin at all closely, you may wonder why I am standing here. Uh, the bulletin says that this morning's sermon is being given by the very Reverend Paul Donison, and I am not he. Uh, unfortunately, Dean Paul was feeling under the weather this weekend and uh, asked me to step in for him, uh, which does not, by the way, which does not give any of you permission to leave. I will know. I'm watching you. So please stay. Uh, in all seriousness, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach and grateful that, that Dean Paul uh, is letting me finish up his sermon series on the book of Ruth. What's even better is he took all the really hard parts of the book and I just get to preach the happy ending. And it really is great. I mean, Ruth has a wonderful ending. It's one of the things I like about this book. Not all books of the Bible have that. A lot of them don't have happy endings, but Ruth does. Listen to this. This is from Ruth chapter four. I'm gonna start reading in the 13th verse. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. So there you go. Boaz and Ruth got married. They have a baby. The once bitter Naomi is laughing and playing with her grandson. And all those women, all those women who were gawking and gossiping when she first came back to Bethlehem, now they're celebrating and enjoying her happiness with her. Honestly, Hallmark couldn't have done a better job. This is a really, really wonderful conclusion. But this happy ending didn't come easily, did it? There was a lot of hardship before those wedding bells rang. And there were a lot of years of mourning the death of dead children before Naomi was bouncing that baby on her knee. So this morning, I don't want to just talk about the happy ending. I want to kind of walk back through this story that we've been talking about for several weeks. Walk back through it and see how, with all its ups and downs, how does the story of Ruth help us to make sense of our own lives? When I think about this story, I find it helpful to divide it into four kind of periods or four stages, beginning with when Elimelech and Naomi leave to go to Moab. Uh, Hebrew 
prose, the kind of style that was used in writing this story. Hebrew prose is notoriously sparse on detail. Rarely do authors give you much, if any, insight into the inner lives of the people whose stories they tell. And, and Ruth is no different in that regard. When the book opens, we're told that there's this man from Bethlehem and a famine comes and he takes his wife and two sons and they immigrate to Moab. And that's it. That's all we're told. How Elimelech and Naomi may have been feeling about such a momentous move. What kinds of late night conversations kept them up as they were struggling with the decision on whether to leave their home, leave Bethlehem? What kind of, of hopes or, or fears may have motivated them to finally make that decision? We're told none of that. But there are at least a couple clues to their state of mind. For instance, it's clear that Elimelech and Naomi, when they set out, it's clear that they're hopeful. The late psychologist C.R. Snyder spent much of his career studying and writing about the nature of hope. And according to him, he says that there are three things that all hopeful people share. First, they're goal-oriented. When they think about the future, they tend to think in terms of specific goals. Second, he says, hopeful people have a kind of confidence, a confidence in their own agency and ability. They don't just have goals. They have a conviction that they can do something to achieve those goals. And third, and finally, he says that when faced with obstacles, barriers that threaten their goals, hopeful people don't give up. They develop what Snyder called pathways, alternate routes, something to get around it. When a tree is in the path, they don't just turn around, they find a way around it. And in that sense, Elimelech and Naomi are very clearly hopeful. They definitely have goals. They have goals and visions of prosperity for their family. They want their family to grow. They want their sons to marry. They want their family to endure for generations to come. And so when that famine hits Bethlehem and all of a sudden their goals are threatened, they don't give up. You know, they could have just stayed in Bethlehem. Evidently, most of the other people did. They could have stayed there, but they didn't. They did something risky. They did something daring. And they knew, they knew that it was going to cost them. They knew it would be difficult but they were resilient. They were confident. So they packed up what they owned. They packed up their two sons. They immigrated to a new country and they started over. That's how the story begins. Hopeful, optimistic, confident, de determined in the face of adversity. It's a story that a lot of immigrants can relate to. And it seems, it seems at first like it's going to turn out to be a success. It's not like everything goes swimmingly when they get to Moab. The narrator says that pretty quickly Elimelech dies. And you would think maybe that would just be the end of those visions and dreams. But Naomi doesn't give up. She's more resilient than that. She perseveres. She continues. And, and it seems like things are turning around because 
Her sons find wives. They get married. The family is starting to grow. But you know, even hopeful people can only take so much. And when Malon and Killian die, that's when the story takes a dramatic turn. That's when all of Naomi's previous confidence and resilience seem to abandon her. Instead of feeling glad, she feels bitter. Instead of feeling hope, she despairs. You remember what she says to Ruth and Orpah when they try to follow her? Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. I am too old. Those are not just the words of a woman who's reckoning with the reality that she's too old to have children. Those are the words of a woman whose soul has grown old and weary. A woman who feels like God himself has turned against her. And that all the hopes that had originally driven her and Elimelech to to move in the first place, now she just looks back on those with bitterness. That they're now nothing more than impossible dreams, nothing more than naive and childish fantasies. Why would you go with me? You can hear it again in the words that she says, you know, when she gets to Bethlehem to those women. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, Miss Bitter. That's what my life has turned into, bitterness. I went away full, she says, and the Lord has brought me back empty. When she left with Elimelech, she was full, full of hope, full of determination, full of confidence, Now, nothing. Now she just feels disappointment, discouragement, disillusionment. It's hard not to feel sympathy for Naomi, not just because she's obviously in pain. It's hard not to feel sympathy for her because many of us can relate to her. We know what it feels like to give up on hopes. We know what it feels like to look back with regret and bitterness at dead and abandoned dreams. Sometimes, like Naomi, that kind of bitterness comes as a result of loss. The loss of work. The loss of friends. The loss of a home. The loss of the people you love. Sometimes it's the product of spending years hoping and working for something that just never comes to fruition. You may have experienced, you yourself, you may have experienced infertility. Or you probably know at least someone who has. And if so, you'll know how devastating it can be to want and to pray and to hope for and to work for a child month after month, year after year. And nothing ever happens. But you know, you can also experience that kind of disappointment in your spiritual life. Last year, when, last summer, when we read that book, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God Together, something he said near the end really struck me uh, because he's just so nice all the time, so it seemed uncharacteristic of him. But he said, there are some forms of gospel ministry that are cruel. 
Sometimes, he says, sometimes we, we, we talk about the gospel and we talk about God's grace in such a way that gives people false expectations. Sometimes, intentionally or unintentionally, we suggest to people that if you would, if you would just put your trust in Jesus, if you would just give your life to him, everything would change. Your relationships would get better. Your family would be happier. All those bad habits and besetting temptations that, that you struggle with, they'd all easily be taken care of. You could just bring it to God in prayer. But that's not really how it works, is it? And sometimes people get converted to Christianity with those expectations. And then Packer says, then they find out it is not like that at all. God does not make their circumstances notably easier, he says. Dissatisfaction recurs over wife or husband or parents or in-laws or children or colleagues or neighbors. Temptations and bad habits reappear. As the first great waves of joy rolled over them during the opening weeks of their Christian experience, they had really felt that all problems had solved themselves. And now they see that it is not so. That's the second stage of the story of Ruth. What began hopeful has quickly turned into despair. And that leads us into the, the third stage of this story, the third period. And if the first period of the story is characterized by a kind of confident, confident determination, if the second period is characterized by bitter disappointment, I would suggest that the third part of this story, everything that includes Ruth and Boaz's interactions in chapters two and three, that this third part is characterized first and foremost by faith. You might notice that as the second chapter begins, Ruth finally takes action. So far, she's just kind of, she's just kind of followed Naomi along. But, you know, they're running out of food. They're back in Bethlehem. Things are still not going that well. And so Ruth decides to do something about it. And when you read that, you, you might think that, well, it seems like Ruth now has a very similar attitude to what Naomi and Elimelech had at the beginning of the story. She has goals and there's an obstacle, but she's determined and she's going to fire a way around it. She's going to achieve those goals. But if you pay closer attention, you'll see that's not really Ruth's attitude at all. Notice what she actually says to Naomi in chapter 2, verse 2. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, it's nice that Ruth wants to help. Bless her heart. She has good intentions. That is not a great plan. All she's going to do, she's just going to go out to some field that she doesn't even know where it is. And she's just going to start harvesting grain and assume that there's going to be somebody who's going to show her some favor. Ruth's initiative here, it's less a matter of confident self-reliance than it is a step of faith. Because what she's doing is she's heading out trusting that someone will show her kindness. And of course, that's exactly what happens. She meets Boaz. And Boaz welcomes her and he invites her to glean in his field and he promises to protect her and provide whatever she needs. 
And she knows, she knows that she's unworthy of that kind of treatment. She's a Moabite. And she's a stranger. And she, that's, she tells Boaz that. But nevertheless, he shows kindness to her anyway. And she starts to trust him. And Boaz isn't just the only, Boaz isn't the only one that she trusts. You know, it's right after that that Naomi comes up with that plan that's weird about Ruth going in the middle of the night to Boaz while he's sleeping and then sort of awkwardly finding a way to get him to ask her to marry him. And you know that when Ruth is listening to this plan for the first time, you know she thinks it's a little crazy and she knows this could go really bad. But what does she do? She trusts Naomi. She has faith in her. It might sound crazy, but she listens to Naomi's advice and does what she says. And, and another point, when Boaz is talking to her in chapter two, he recognizes that Ruth doesn't just have faith in him and doesn't just have faith in Naomi, because in verse 12, he tells her, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward will be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth is a Moabite, a foreigner, and yet Boaz recognizes in her a woman of faith, a woman, he says, who has come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And even as she leaves that threshing floor after that awkward encounter, after she leaves the threshing floor carrying her sack full of barley and a promise from Boaz to do something, even that is an act of faith. When she gets home, Naomi tells her, you got to trust Boaz. Just wait, don't do anything. Just trust that he will settle the matter. Of course, Ruth doesn't wait that long. Boaz is prompt and he settles the matter the next day. But even that act of waiting even that is an act of faith because she has to trust that Boaz will actually do what he said. And then finally you come to chapter four and that's the climax of the whole story. And all of the, the faith that Ruth has shown, it's finally vindicated. And Boaz does exactly what he said he's going to do. He, redeem, he redeems both Ruth and Naomi and, and he and Ruth get married and they're given a child and you notice what the, women, what the women say to Naomi when Obed is born. They say, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Remember, it wasn't that long ago, it wasn't that long ago that Naomi had just completely given up on the dream of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Naomi had resigned herself to the fact that her family line is dead. So when Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi and God gives them that child, what's clear is God isn't just healing the wounds of Naomi's soul. God is not just restoring her hope. God is restoring her very life to her. Like I said, this is a wonderful Beautiful ending. Hallmark couldn't do better. But we would do a disservice to this story if we stop there and if we think that what this is is just some really inspiring story about something that happened thousands of years ago to some Moabite woman and her mother-in-law. There's a lot more to it than that. 
As St. Ambrose once said of Ruth, the story is a simple one, but deep are its hidden meanings. And the more I've thought about this story, the more I've realized that it's really remarkably similar to our own. And just think about it. Like I said, when Elimelech and Naomi, when they first depart to Moab, they have this, they have this kind of self-assurance. They're confident, they're determined, they're resilient. They've got goals, plans for achieving those goals. They're not gonna let any obstacles stand in their way. And in that sense, I think they're really a lot like us. You know, I happened to see this Gallup poll this week that says Americans are more pessimistic than they've been in decades about the future of their children. And it says that fewer than half of Americans, fewer than half agree that it is even somewhat likely that their children will have a life better than their own. And that's a significant change to the past several decades. But at the same time, I don't think that that means that we all have all necessarily given up on hope, at least not in the way that psychologist C.R. Snyder talked about it. From what I can tell, at least in living in this area, there's still a lot of goals that people have for their kids. And there is a lot of work and a lot of strategizing being put in to achieve those goals. I was at this, I was at this parents' meeting last year at my daughter's school with the headmaster. And, um, and a lot of the parents there were talking about some, they were starting to talk about college visits that they were gonna make and, and how to prepare for the SAT and uh, all these different strategies. And these aren't high schoolers. This was parents of seventh graders. They were talking about this. And my point is simply that however optimistic or not optimistic we may feel, it's still pretty clear that we tend to assume that if we've got a goal, we can find a strategy and we can overcome obstacles and we can achieve it. But that's not really true. Jesus would not have had to die upon that cross if you and I could solve our own problems. And the Apostle Paul says that all of us, each and every one of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says that we are held down, that we are bound, that we are captive to powers beyond our control. He says that we are born into a condition of spiritual death and absolute famine that we cannot escape which is why we need to pay close attention to this second part of Naomi's story. When after the death of her sons, she finally comes to the end of herself and realizes that she can do nothing to resolve her situation. You know, there's an interesting pattern that I tend to see. Anytime I read about the lives of saints, those who have personally experienced and known the joy of the gospel before they get to that point, they almost always have come to despair of their own abilities to save themselves. You cannot know the joy of the gospel until you have really learned to despair of yourself. And that's not just a lesson you learn once. It seems to be something that's just hammered into you again and again. I have to learn this lesson all the time. You know, I'll think I'm doing pretty well and uh, my prayer is going well, and I start feeling better, like, you know, I've really got this discipleship thing kind of down. And immediately, 
immediately God somehow reminds me of just how weak and how dependent I am, how desperately I am in the need of the help of someone else. And I think that's what really stands out about Ruth's story. Now, I've often heard, I've often heard people compare Boaz to Christ because, you know, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer and Boaz has to pay a sacrificial price to redeem Ruth and Naomi from their destitution. And, and the redemption that Boaz brings actually doesn't just give them hope, but it, it turns Naomi's story from one of death to life. There's a lot of similarities to Christ. But what I hadn't really realized, until I was kind of thinking about it more this week, I hadn't really realized just how much Ruth is a model of what it means to walk by faith. You know, Ruth's plight is as desperate as Naomi's. She can't redeem herself either. So she learns, she learns to trust in a man who shows her undeserved kindness. He speaks words of grace to her. He makes promises of redemption to her. Then he actually feeds her. He gives her food from his own table. He gives her food of grain to assure her of his unwavering commitment to her. And how does she respond? She trusts him. She trusts him enough to wait. She trusts him enough to act as if he's actually telling the truth. You see how much we can learn from Ruth? We too have a kinsman redeemer. Someone who has joined himself to us. Someone who has paid a very dear price to redeem us from our plight. And he has promised us that one day, one day he will turn our mourning into dancing. That one day, like Ruth, we will experience a wedding feast with him. That on that day, there will be no more fear, no more tears, that our bitterness will be gone. And until that day, until that day comes, what does he do? What does he do every single week? Week after week, we gather together. And what does Jesus do? He feeds us. He feeds us from his own table. He feeds us with the gift of his own body and blood to assure us of his commitment to us. I don't know where you are in your own journey this morning. Maybe, maybe you are on your way to Moab. Maybe you're feeling pretty confident, pretty self-assured. You've got goals. You know that there are obstacles, but you can find a way around it. You think you're going to be able to achieve it. Maybe, maybe you're leaving Moab. Maybe you have been so beaten down by disappointment, by loss, by dreams that never seem to materialize no matter what you do, that now you're just, you just feel like you want to give up. Or maybe you're there with Ruth. Maybe with Ruth, you're learning to trust, to trust in the words of your Redeemer, to wait for him. Or maybe, depending on the day, you're just somewhere in between or you waffle back and forth. Wherever you might be, I want you to know this. The story of Ruth, it's not just her story. 
And her happy ending is not just some fairy tale romance. You too have a redeemer. And he loves you just as passionately, just as fiercely, with as much perseverance as Boaz loved Ruth. He has promised to redeem you. He has already already paid the price. All you have to do is trust him. Just trust that he will keep his word and know, and know that your happy ending is coming. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.